Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring in the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. The coronavirus situation we are all facing right now is tough for a number of reasons. Arguably, one of the biggest concerns right now for us in the media is the different ways mis- and disinformation is taking form. Today, no less on International Fact-Checking Day, we're going to be covering some of the key trends of false information surrounding the coronavirus outbreak. What's more, you will also get a sense of what you can do from home to fact-check hoaxes, simple misunderstandings, and quite seriously malicious attempts to misguide the public. Joining us today is Hazel Baker, Head of User-Generated Content News Gathering at Reuters. Now, Reuters last week announced it was expanding its partnership with Facebook to act as one of its third-party fact-checking organisations where I am in the UK. A lot of journalists may feel thrown in at the deep end by having to turn their attention to a specialist and technical beat. So today, Hazel offers some concrete examples of where mis- and disinformation is bubbling up online and how journalists working from home can respond. Don't forget, if you'd like to jump on the podcast with me, shoot an email over to jacob at journalism.co.uk. Don't go anywhere. Hazel joins us on Skype after this quick message from the journalism.co.uk jobs board. This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs in the media and communications industry. Our job of the week is an associate editor role at HIMSS. To apply for this opportunity and more, visit our jobs board at www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Hazel, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, It's obviously very strange times at the moment, not being able to see colleagues uh, face to face, but Fortunately, I'm used to working with quite a remote team, so it's not too different to normal in that respect, but but very, very strange to be working outside of my study for the for the whole time. But yeah, we're doing okay. I can I can definitely agree with some of the, the feelings that you shared with me there. Uh, we're here, of course, to talk about the different ways that mis- and disinformation is manifesting itself in these strange times that we're finding ourselves in in the media with the coronavirus crisis. Let's take a step back from that because you've recently at Reuters announced this fact-checking partnership with with Facebook. What can you tell me about that in terms of how that works and how it's being expanded here to the UK? That's right. It's an extension of the agreement we already had as as third-party fact-checkers for for Facebook. So that was an agreement that we launched into um, in February of this year. So only six short weeks ago. And it's amazing how how differently the world looked back then. Um, So at that point, we were focused on fact-checking information uh, posted by US users of Facebook, um, and we've extended now into the UK. So we're looking at material posted by people here in Britain as well. Um, so it, we're part of this partnership. Um, we're certainly not the only fact checker that Facebook uses. There's a whole um, set of, of fact checkers around the world. All of us are signatories of the International Fact Checking Network, which is an independent body. And, you know, we worked hard to prove to the IFCN that that we were qualified to do this work. We had to give many examples of, of work that we'd done before. And we also had to be uh, very transparent about our policies. Um, and then as soon as we, we got on board, we began um, checking material in earnest. So every day we review content that is that is supplied by Facebook. They use various algorithms, um, including user feedback, to try to bring together a pool of content which may be suspect. And we review that content on a daily basis and look for things which we think we can check. So things that are making claims which we think are at least partly false. 
um, which are editorially valuable, so they relate to ongoing stories, and also information which has been widely shared, and we feel that, that we can really contribute to, to uh, either the, the lower distribution of that material or the distribution with additional information. So, so it's specifically uh, fact-checking and verifying flagged-up content? Well, that's sort of the principal way, but we're actually able to bring in other misinformation that we've seen ourselves. And we're doing both types um, on, a, on a daily basis. So as well as examining the stuff which has been flagged as potentially false, and that's, you know, that's what we get through our partnership with Facebook. That's what we're exposed to. We're also um, constantly looking for examples on other social networks um, or in other places on the Internet or indeed in, in the wild on Facebook that we've seen. Um, and if they fall into into that category of being checkable and, and being valuable, then we'll definitely look into those too. And Facebook uh, are very pleased if we can bring in material that we've seen that we can check and import it into their, their system and they'll treat it in the same way as anything that they've flagged up themselves. And and I understand this sort of expansion has been catalyzed by the, the, the COVID-19 situation that we're in now with more disinformation kind of being seen. This has essentially got your skates on and push forward something that was already in the pipeline that's a good description yeah getting our skates on I mean I was sort of bouncing around the walls last week trying to (laughs) trying to get this forward because I could just see this is the critical time for tackling this kind of misinformation it's very dangerous misinformation and there is lots of it um, I mean, misinformation is not new. We were absolutely planning this expansion because we thought there was misinformation that we could tackle um, and it was very much scheduled for, for the coming months. But I think we, we we definitely felt the sense of urgency and actually quite a lot of you know things over the last week I, I think have been done. You know, The world has changed so much and we've had to react very quickly at Reuters and I think that we have done and this is one of those areas. Um, to, to quickly get things up and running, to prioritise and to completely direct our resources um, at the moment to, to fact-checking material relating to the virus. I'm really keen to sort of look at a few of, few of the specific areas where this is bubbling up and examples of uh, mis- and disinformation. But just kind of before we dive into that, this is all verifying or fact-checking that your journalists are able to do in situations like your own where we're working from home this is all stuff that's possible to do from the comfort of our living rooms rather than our newsrooms yeah that's right um in a way this team is is very lucky um because we're able to do very meaningful work without having to leave our homes um there's a lot of getting on the phone to to medical bodies seeking comment um you know it's not always easy to get hold of press offices when they themselves are, are not in the usual places but we have found that many many of these bodies are trying to be as helpful as possible because they know that this misinformation is dangerous and they do want to help us prove that it's false um but yeah that we've we've got a team um working from their homes in london in washington dc in new york and in mexico that that's across the the us and the uk uh, looking at content and and we're working in a remote team using instant messaging using video calling um, and using a, a sort of content curation system for social media and that's that's useful luckily we've we've actually got some really good remote working systems in place already because we've we've never sat alongside each other in the same office that's that's true of many Reuters teams so so that in itself wasn't the huge change um but obviously everybody's personal circumstances have changed a lot and it, and it's definitely a challenge you know everyone's worried i guess about certain aspects um certain family members etc like i'm trying to juggle two kids as well um so there's all that playing along in the background but fundamentally the work flow hasn't changed and, and that's good it, it allows us to keep pushing and and, and producing checks uh, you know if, if anything at a greater speed than before 
I think that's a, a really helpful context that you touched on, Hazel, because I think what we've got to understand about audiences right now is that they're seeing a lot of legitimate reporting about how fatal and dangerous this infection is. And then in, in many cases, if you've got uh, a close family relative who is taking ibuprofen-based prescription and you're hearing reports of it saying that it's going to aggravate the infection, I think most people in that situation would, whether or not that news story or that source is true or false, would take a better safe than sorry approach and just avoid it. Yeah, you can see why why that would be the case. But um, it's worth noting that the NHS website was updated to say that that if you had the infection, it would be advisable to keep taking paracetamol because it's not clear what the impact of ibuprofen would be. However, if you were already taking ibuprofen, um, not to stop taking it without first speaking to your doctor, you know, you don't want to be self-medicating. Um, and, you know, if you stop taking ibuprofen, ibuprofen that you were taking for something else, you don't know what the impact on your pre-existing condition would be. So, you know, there's lots of factors at play here and we do have individual circumstances to think about medically. Um, so, you know, one size fits all perhaps isn't applicable there. But you can see why that information spreads because people want to feel like they're doing the right thing um, and are fearful. And if there's anything we've learned about misinformation, it's it spreads most rapidly when people are really scared and, and are not necessarily getting the answers that, that they want. It's a difficult one to fact check. Most of, most of the um, the claims around that about you know ibuprofen being dangerous si- simply can't be checked yet because nobody has done the science. You know that there is not hasn't been sufficient time for for those kind of long term um, studies which can be replicated to happen. So um, the best we can do as media organisations is to help people understand. We know that you want answers about this, but but there is nobody who can give them to you. But this is the information that we have so far, um, and these are the guidelines that are coming from you know the public health bodies for your country and and therefore you know probably worth considering i guess the thing that that concerns me is if you if you think you're following a list of tips um about things like you know eating lots of garlic and ginger and uh taking extracts etc does that change your behavior in other aspects does it make you feel like you're less likely to be be infected by the virus and you know the the basically no you know this is a new virus none of us have any immunity to it um and the 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 only thing that's really going to protect us is not being exposed to it in the first place and that's why we need to stay at home um so i think that's um that is an important aspect of the misinformation is to not put people in a false sense of security when when you're in as a journalist in that situation when you're hearing kind of two conflicting sides of the argument what happens to the articles that you've already published which seem to say one thing and then you've kind of got a definitive confirmation the other end do you have to go sort of go back and alter those existing articles well the, uh, for the fact checks absolutely yes um, i'm not going to speak for all of reuters.com who aren't necessarily following exactly the same procedure as, as this but for fact checks where you know we do want them to be evergreen and and people should be able to click through from Facebook content to them and see them on our site. We would update them um, at the top saying there was an update um, uh, or a correction if that's necessary and clearly state at the very first paragraph along with the date what the change had been um, and, and why that was the case. So that, that's how the fact checks work um, and they definitely do get updated if more information comes to, to the front. What sort of information are we seeing about um, vaccines at the moment because this is kind of the content that all audiences will be sort of keeping their eyes peeled for uh, journalists in that situation what kind of things are you seeing in that in that field yeah I'm glad you brought up vaccines because that was one of the the key themes that we've seen um, gain pace in terms of misinformation so 
obviously there is a lot of true information happening around the development of the vaccine for for this coronavirus um, and it's happening at a very rapid pace you know it's it's unprecedented i think in the development of vaccines how, how quickly things are being pushed through um, and that's being tackled by our, our Reuters reporters. In terms of misinformation that we're seeing, um, we've seen a picture being distributed extremely widely that's said to show a new vaccine created by Roche, the big pharmaceutical company, and, and ready for distribution, you know, like it's already been made in the thousands. But the picture is of a test. It's for, it's for a COVID-19 test. You know, it's not the vaccine. Um, we've also seen a quite a convincing text post saying that the Israeli researchers had had got a vaccine ready and it was approved and it was being shipped into the US in a fortnight. Now, as with kind of a lot of misinformation around, if you dig extremely deep, there's like a tiny little grain of truth somewhere. So it is true that Israeli researchers have made some really good steps towards um, a vaccine development and, you know, working extremely hard on that and do hope that the timescale will be much shorter than previous vaccines. But it's not going to be shipped to the US in two weeks. Um, and, you know, people need to know that's not the case. You know, we are probably in for several months of major disruption because the, the vaccine is not going to be ready that quickly. So is that more of a kind of a misunderstanding or is that more of an intentional case of false information? It's not clear always for the, for those two. Um, I think that the, the picture may well have been a misunderstanding. Um, it was probably captioned as a test, but somewhere down the line, people understood it to be, you know, not a test, but a vaccine. That said, the one from the that mentioned the Israeli scientists, it had at the end of it a kind of reference to a couple of Israeli publications. And we thought, OK, so we looked into those publications to see if they'd done any reporting on this. And we actually couldn't find it at all, apart from the um, uh, the reporting they'd done on their own universities doing doing research, which was widely known. So that may have been malicious, but it is quite difficult to tell on, on the face of it. What I would say is most people who shared that definitely didn't so, do so in a malicious way. You know, I think they were sharing it because they believed it was it was genuine. It's possible for this to be misunderstood is what I'm getting at. These are this is quite a technical area, and if you're a journalist who's sort of had to step into this um, sort of, sort of space when they're not used to health reporting and and medical reporting, it can be really difficult, and they can feel sort of out of their depth. So, what's kind of your advice for um, journalists who've had to kind of step into this space and, and come to terms with 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 some of the things that they're having to report on? What we found is that virtually every health body. Um, we've spoken to is extremely keen to help us with this they're very aware of the misinformation around um, and and they definitely want to see it, it it distributed far far less than it is at the moment so you know everybody we've reached out to has tried to reply to us we don't always get an immediate reply they're very busy but but they do try to answer our questions we've had various scientists on the phone um, who've helped us unpick uh, the various claims that we're looking at it's worth looking into some of the, the smaller medical bodies as well, like the specialists, because we saw one claim in the UK which claimed that if you had a respiratory condition, uh, you could contact your GP for a rescue pack, which contained various steroids, um, which would help. The implication was this would help if you were to become infected with the coronavirus. But actually, Asthma UK, the charity and the Lung Foundation and lots of GP surgeries clearly had been aware of that misinformation. And they'd already actively posted on their social media pages statements saying this is incorrect. You know, some people with respiratory conditions may already have been prescribed rescue packs as part of their agreed management plan for those conditions. Um, and, and that's not affected by by the current situation. But the, it's certainly not the case 
you can call up and get one and also it should not be seen as any sort of treatment for uh, if you were to become infected by the coronavirus. So I think there's a lot of people out there who are really trying to help get the message home. Good um, medical bodies know that that it's difficult, the science is complicated, um, but they do try to, to make it as simple as possible for people to understand and extract the key messages. So we've called the, the World Health Organization, we've called the NHS, Public Health England, and the CDC in the United States, and lots of universities as well have been helping out so those are your best port of calls? Yeah, I think I think for phone calls in, always look at their websites first. They may have answered the question already. And beyond that, yeah, charities, as long as they're, they're big recognised charities um, and individual professors who've got expertise in that area. Obviously, science, uh, you know, th- there are lots of disagreements in lots of areas of science. Um, and we have to be aware of that and reflect that and not um, oversimplify cases where, you know, the, the studies are still being done. Um, so that is a daily challenge to reflect the fact that more work is needed, um, papers need to be peer reviewed and haven't been reviewed yet because it's so early in this development of the, the virus. But you can obviously lean on your colleagues working from home as well to get a second opinion or a third opinion if need be, if what you're looking at, um, you're not particularly convinced by it. Well, that too. And we're lucky at Reuters because we've got lots of experts. So we did a piece on on conspiracy theories, uh, trying to link the virus to 5G networks. Um, and I'm not an expert but in 5G and none of the team were. So we did speak to to one of our reporters who um, absolutely does have some, you know, a previous experience in, in 5G. Previously, you'd said there's a there's often a grain of a grain of truth in anything. Does that also apply to sort of conspiracy theories, which on the face of it seem obviously quite wide of the mark? The, I think this conspiracy involving 5G is, is one of the cases where there is no grain of truth to be honest um it is at the extreme end of things um uh, that's true of all the conspiracy theory kind of uh, claims that we we come across we've seen claims that you know the the vaccine is going to implant everybody with chips to record their movements um we've seen ideas that the coronavirus outbreak is some gigantic cover-up uh for some celebrity um sex trafficking ring i mean these are all really really um extreme theories and I think they sit at one end of the misinformation spectrum and they don't have those grains of truth that some of the other ones do. In some ways that makes it easier to check but actually the complexity of some of these conspiracy theories makes it very hard because the posts have got you know 10-15 different claims in them and unpicking every single one of those is very challenging in in terms of time and resource so we have to be quite um, selective with the ones that we go after. Um, when is it worth actually picking through these in, in terms of when you see one which is quite outrageously, you know, unbelievable? When is it worth your time and resources to actually put some effort into, you know, unpicking these? That's a good question because you don't necessarily want to give um, an amplica- amplification effect to those conspiracy theories. Um, so I think that the way that we've approached it is to look for strands of those theories which are gaining any sort of traction in, in more mainstream sharing of, of social media um, rather than kind of being confined to one uh, strange corner of the internet. So that, that that's important, trying to track how much they're, they're really sort of gaining traction out, outside of those kind of closed groups and, and discussion corners. And then the other aspect is um, whether those claims are are likely to be harmful to the people who read them. So will they take action which is different having read them? So, you know, that's one of the ways we we measure harm. And then the other aspect is, you know, we want to make checks that people want to read 
Um, and part of that is understanding, you know, what kind of things are we, people are interested in? Are we answering questions that they may have? You know, it's, it's an editorial decision, much as you would do for any journalistic story. Are, are, you know, are we going to write something here that people are going to want to read? Mm. So, so really quite pick your battles with that. I mean, it, in a sense, these are quite deliberate attempts to mislead people. We are seeing sort of, sort of different cases of that at the moment. Sort of pre-lockdown, you would have seen this news story where uh, the local news website Kent Online was sort of the unfortunate recipient of what what we're calling imposter content, where someone had taken the time to mock up a screenshot of one of their news articles, which obviously wasn't theirs, um, to show kind of a case of COVID-19 in the local area. Now, somebody's taken the time to do that and, and try and mislead people. Is that an isolated event or are you seeing more more examples of that, Hazel? Imposter content is actually the type of misinformation that worries me most. Um, and I've definitely seen a big rise in it, and particularly in the UK, actually. So we saw just before the lockdown was announced, there was a um, piece of, of fake content. It was a mocked up version of the .gov.uk website um, saying that it was now a criminal offence to leave your house. Um, I thought that was a very serious piece of misinformation and we actually flagged that one directly to, to Facebook rather than, than going through the fact check process. I was worried that people genuinely would believe that and be scared to leave their house, even if they had a, a real need to. Um, and someone, yeah, had taken the time to create that that mocked up page and that is definitely concerning and, and really harmful. That's, that's an, a good example of disinformation. There's a clear intent to deceive. What we did see is people who shared that may not have understood necessarily that it was um, uh, deceptive um, or they may have thought it was a joke. So, you know, they're not necessarily the creators of the content, but they're, but they're sharing it. Obviously, the government sent everybody in Britain the first text message to say that, you know, these new rules were in place and it was important that everybody abided by them. But then there was a second uh, message on this this fake screenshot, um, which said that uh, this phone has been tracked as leaving the, the home location three times and you've now been fined £30 on your bill, um, which which was complete nonsense. And, you know, number 10 confirmed that to us quickly. So, again, you know, that kind of information can affect people's behaviour. It is not immediately obvious from the screenshot that it was fake. It was quite authentic looking. Um, and, you know, at this time when people are panicking, I think maybe, you know, they're not necessarily able to take the time and, and step back and think, okay, is that, could that really be the case? And some of the comments on that, you know, definitely displayed that people were not certain whether this could actually happen and could they turn the GPS on the, off on their phone? And there was, you know, a lot of discussion around that. So imposter content um, is one of the biggest challenges. It's definitely one of the priorities for us to try to tackle um, because I think it misleads people, you know, really easily. I, mean, I have to say the example I gave with Kent Online, they had done the logo and it looked very convincing. That was that was an example which surfaced on Facebook, who obviously you're, you're working with now. What can you tell me about the steps that that platform is now taking to help news organizations with this kind of emerging form of disinformation you know they'll be very concerned about this this kind of potential yes facebook has its own guidelines about uh, what kind of information it can be removed if, if it violates its guidelines and they definitely announced in the previous weeks that they would take down information that would be harmful to people um, around the coronavirus um, if it was circulating so you know we're, we're looking at a, a broad of information um, of false claims but if we see anything which is immediately and directly very harmful to people that's the kind of thing we would flag to di Facebook directly so they're able to enact their, their policy. But that, that's the type of false information which is out in the public what about the type of misinformation which is kind of behind closed doors and on private platforms because that is the the information that kind of 
worries me a little bit in terms of it, it, the problem is not just debunking this information, but it's also getting hold of it in the first place. Because unless you've been sent one of these hoaxes on WhatsApp, they can be hard to track down unless they resurface. What kind of misinformation are you seeing on private platforms and how are you kind of getting hold of it to work and, and debunk and verify it? I've started to get this stuff from my own contacts, which has never really happened before. You know, it's spreading extremely far and fast. You know, previously I'd had to go searching for it or invited people to send it to me, but... But you know, this time it's coming in without me even asking. The other thing we're observing very much is that you know stuff that's circulating on WhatsApp groups actually does pass on to the platforms too, and that's very true of you know some of the screenshots that are fake that we've seen people posting on on open social networks, and and when we look into them, it turns out actually these these started to circulate on on uh, WhatsApp. Um, sometimes there's voice notes too. That's one thing I've I've seen a bit of this week, which claimed to be a translation of something said by a doctor at a Spanish hospital. Um, someone's colleague knew a friend who worked there. I mean, that's the classic start. You know, I know someone who knows someone and immediately you, you start to wonder. Um, and that, that was an English voice note. Um, it was advising people to drink water and it was a good way of stopping the coronavirus. It wasn't it wasn't harmful in that respect. Drinking water is not going <laughs> to going to damage you unless you drink vast quantities of it. But it's definitely misleading. Um, it wasn't backed up by 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 lots of claims. Um, and, it, and it's just very difficult to track. But that's the kind of thing that once we've we've seen ourselves through through different chat apps, we can often go looking for on the open networks. And very often we can find it. People do share onto open networks, too. And that's that's very much the case with this um, crisis. I haven't seen it quite happen so much previously. It is interesting to see how how much is being shared this time around. I think what I've taken just so far from this conversation is just the the sheer variety of of uh, ways that false information is really kind of taking form. Whether that's the type on private messaging platforms or quite intentional sort of hoaxes or sort of wider conspiracy theories. For the journalists working at home at the moment uh, and trying to sort of make sense of it all. Uh, Hazel, what's kind of your key bit of advice to them in terms of really trying to wade through and decipher what's true and what's real, what's fact and what's fiction? Yeah, that's something we've thought about. I think one of the easiest ways is to try to divide it into categories of misinformation um, around the virus. So one big category is about the outbreak, you know, what caused the virus, how did it spread? Um, that links to many of the conspiracy ideas about it being a bioweapon or or linked to 5G in some way. Um, so that's kind of one bucket of content which... Uh, you know we've seen lots of variations of then there's the idea about false remedies or like misguided advice we're seeing a lot of that that gets shared by lots of people in a sort of well-meaning way um you know they want to be helpful to people i think a lot of that is misinformation not disinformation those are the kinds of things that often have the grain of truth in them um you know things that you can do to keep your body healthy yeah for sure but it's not going to stop you from the virus that kind of that kind of idea and then the third category is um, authorities and, and individuals' response to the crisis. And that comes into, you know, the idea of, of that fake screenshot of people telling people it was a criminal offence to leave your house. Um, we've had seen in the US a video shared of, of military trucks on the streets, which claim to show uh, the US military arresting people for breaking the curfew. 
actually there was no curfew this was new york city when we saw it and the video was really old it was from 2014 so you know that's that's the other aspect of it and i think if you think in those three main strands it's it's quite helpful to give some direction because otherwise it's just this massive information uh, people sharing things so quickly and you know remember right now People are spending a lot of time looking for answers on digital media um, and sharing things very fast. So, so the volume of misinformation is very, very high. That is useful. I mean, we, we, we're going to be in this situation um, for some time yet. Uh, do you think this, this is going to get kind of worse before it gets better or is it going to get easier as we figure out how these uh, types of mis and disinformation are taking form and, and are able to categorise them as you've just described? Um, I think misinformation will continue to thrive as long as people remain in a very tense state. Um, you know, that's been our experience with other stories that we've worked on um, as journalists. Um, you know, we've seen misinformation spread just so quickly when people feel that they are, you know, scared about their, their lives, their livelihoods. Um, and that's true at the moment. And unfortunately, I think that's going to be true for, for several weeks yet, as you know, particularly in the UK, as we prepare to, to hit the, the peak of the epidemic. So unfortunately, I don't think it's going to get better very quickly. Um, I hope that as we get over the peak and people adjust um, to the to the lockdown rules that we're under, I, you know, I'd like to see that that drop a bit. Um, I suspect some of the ideas about the remedies, you know, people might feel that they've seen those before and, and the rate of sharing may stop. That said, you know, I think the focus on the political actions and particularly around, you know, the, the approaches that our authorities have had to try and control the pandemic, I suspect we'll see more misinformation around that or at least interpretations of the, the facts which aren't, uh, you know, that can be misleading to people. So I'll be keeping a close eye on that as we go forward. I wish you all the best with it, uh, Hazel. Uh, I really appreciate all your time today. Uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. A fascinating discussion. Uh, what I've taken away from this interview is perhaps what has always been true. False information thrives in a climate of fear. People at home are afraid of this crisis and are desperate for answers. That means there are bad actors at play and also false information shared in good faith. When there is so much information out there, understanding those categories helps you pick your battles. Is it an outbreak cause linked to a conspiracy, a false remedy with that grain of truth, or something around a political response with the intent to deceive? It does just give you that game plan to think, which category does this false claim fall in and how should I respond? If you like what you heard, there are lots more podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for you to check out during these times of self-isolation. You can find us by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Last week, we explored whether a digital detox could be the key to feeling less overwhelmed during this time. And next week, we explore how to report coronavirus to young children. That's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Until next time.